Good to see you. Um, always good to see you, but it does, uh, it does me good, um, more than you think, uh, to see this room um, so full and so joyful. It was a privilege to worship with you um, just now as uh, Len and the guys led us. Always, always a joy to come back to Amsterdam. Thanks for having me. You're, you're, you're a very loved church. Some of you are brand new here, so you don't know me, and you don't know the story necessarily, um, but you need to know this is a very special church. And uh, we've, uh, from, from where I come from in, in Brighton on the south coast of England, uh, been really enjoying watching the story develop, and we pray for you all the time, and we take real delight in every every new adventure, every new story that comes back from Matt and Joe about how things are going at Liberty. It, it's, it's just, it's fantastic fun for us. So if you don't mind, just keep going just for my sake, because it blesses me, it does me good, if for no other reason, just keep going as a church. Um, if you have your Bible, perhaps you turn with me to, to the New Testament, we're going to be looking at uh, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians that we have in the Bible. It's, it's uh, uh, a great letter written by a very passionate and earnest Christian who, who had met Jesus himself while he was trying to close Christianity down, uh, became a Christian, became an apostle. He started churches. He, he oversaw the, the, uh, the, the, uh, the work of God in countless places and trained leaders and, and did remarkable things in spite of incredible opposition. And one of the challenges he had was actually the churches he himself had started, because not every church is perfect. In fact, none of them are. And this church in Corinth was no exception. It was full of problems. So he had to write letters to deal with their, their issues. Um, and so we're going to look at chapter 6 and just read verses 12 to 20. Uh, the theme of this passage is sex. Um, Matt is telling me that you guys are going through the Ten Commandments uh, one at a time. Um, and uh, I know that next uh, Sunday you're getting to the one that deals with sexual ethics, that you shall not commit adultery. And Matt will unpack why that's important, why that's in the Bible, what that actually means, what the, how that affects our lives. And he suggested to me it would be good to kind of anticipate that message a bit by talking about the theme of uh, sexual... Uh, ethics, sexuality from this part of the Bible. So I'm going to read this to you and then we'll pray. The, the title of my topic is Sex God? Question um, mark. I, I, I didn't actually choose this title, just so you know. I happened to speak this same message roughly in London last week and Matt uh, saw that the title, which was given to me by the church in London, I hasten to add, uh, was on the screen behind me when they, uh, when they, they had me preach it, <clears throat> which became, by the way, a very strange Instagram picture <laughs> going out across the world. Um, and, uh, and now he said, could you do the same message in Amsterdam? And can you give it the same title? So I feel like it's basically becoming a tour, <laughs> the sex God tour, um, with me right in front of, you know, with a Bible right in front of a big screen saying sex God. And... Um, and what I find really quite an offense is the question mark at the end. That's, <laughs> kind of resent that. Um, 
But uh, my wife has definitely been amused by the whole, the whole episode. So I never thought this would happen, but yeah, we, we've got some tour dates. We'll get t-shirts down and we'll... we'll... Okay. Uh, I'm going to read to you then from this passage. And, and I think <clears throat> before I do that, just to preface it by saying that I am, I am very aware uh, that for some of you, the whole idea of listening to what the Bible has to say about sex is... Uh, is uncomfortable. Um, in fact, it may be that today is the first day you've come to church or come back to church, <laughs> and you're thinking, oh, I cannot believe it. <laughs> and it's like it's a guest speaker as well. Why would he choose this topic? And I come back on the day they talk about sex. And perhaps you even imagine this is what we talk about every week, you know, which it certainly isn't. But, but it's, it's easy for us to, to feel uncomfortable for, for lots of reasons, but I think for many people, what the Bible has to say about sex is at the heart of our rejection of Jesus. Because we, we are so resentful or, or re resistant of the, the, the possibility that God might want to limit our sexual freedom, that God is against our enjoyment of sex and sexuality, against our enjoyment of life and pleasure in general. And we are so convinced of that, that we assume that he can't be right. He can't be even true or real. We re reject Christianity, we reject Christ, we reject Jesus on the basis of, a, of really a sort of a lifestyle preference that becomes the central thing in our life. And that's really what we mean by sex God. What we're doing when we, we act that way is revealing who our God is. We're saying that the thing that cannot change, the non-negotiable, the deal breaker in my life is my sexual freedom. Nothing touches that. Nothing touches this relationship that I'm in that I will not give up on or I will not change. Nothing touches this, this behavior, this addiction, this habit that I'm committed to that even if I wanted to get rid of, I don't imagine I ever would. So what's the point of even talking about leaving that behind? Uh, nothing's going to uh, ever get in the way of this, uh, even this perhaps identity that I've built up around my sexuality that's now completely at the heart of how I see myself. It's who I am. When we talk that way, we're talking about our God. We might not think of it like that, but we are, because that's the definition of a God. A God is the, is the, the thing that you utterly build your life on, that you say, this, this can never be taken from me. This is my non-negotiable. This is, this is what I build my identity on. This is who I, I, I must have this. If you take this from me, you take everything from me. And many people will actually have a sex god, if you like, but nevertheless behave in other ways as if they have the Christian god. They might go to church, they might, they might do Christian things and look as though their god is the god of the Bible, but the, the, the god of the Bible is kind of there as a means to giving them what they really want. And if your god is... is, is not, 
is not clearly understood in your mind. If you don't get this straight, what you may end up with is actually treating the God of the Bible as effectively kind of your butler, your servant. Because what his job is, is finding and getting the thing that you really want. Because the thing that you really want is definitely not him. He is a means to an end. He's, he's the way I get what I want. And if, if by having the God of the Bible, I can't have the sexual freedom that I think will make me happy, I don't want the God of the Bible. I reject him. I reject Christianity. And that's no exaggeration. I think that's how hundreds of thousands, if not millions and millions of people live these days. Billions, perhaps, have said, right, I must have sexual freedom as, as my ultimate thing, and therefore I reject the God of the Bible. And what I want to say to you today is decide first whether the God of the Bible is real. Decide first whether he's true. And then when you've decided on that, make your decisions about whether, how, how, how sex fits in with the whole picture. Start that in. Don't start by saying, I must have sexual freedom, therefore Jesus didn't die on the cross. You know, that's not a very logical argument, but it's still a prevailing one. No, the, surely the logical way is to say, did Jesus rise from the dead? Did, did Jesus die on the cross for my sin? Did, did that happen? If that really happened, then certainly he has authority. Certainly his word is reliable. I need to take this seriously. And I come from that position to look at the issue of sex and sexuality. I start with the foundation of whether God is real. And then I come back to the subjects of sex and sexuality. The very good news is that when you do that, you discover that his view, the view of the God who rose from the dead, of sex and sexuality is actually more liberating, more pleasing, better, more fulfilling than the view of sex and sexuality that puts sex in as the God that you build your life on. If you put sex and sexuality in as the God of your life, you will actually become very unfulfilled eventually. It will become hollow, unsatisfying, bitter. It will hurt you. It will hurt you. And it will hurt other people. It will hurt your family. It will hurt relationships. It will, it will put poison into your life. If you put Jesus at the center of your life, this whole area of sex and sexuality, though it's still an area of difficulty and pain and struggle and battle, ultimately it's a context of joy. It's a context of worship. It's a context of doing life well, wisely. And that's what we want for all of you, to put Jesus first in your life. And the rest of life makes sense, including sex. Let's look at this passage and we'll go through it uh, a stage at a time. It says this, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Now, I'm going to stop there and we'll, we'll just go through this as, as uh, one verse at a time as we read it. What does he mean by this? All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful all things are lawful for me, but I'll not be enslaved by anything. He's quoting back to the church in Corinth the sort of things they say. 
So you, you've probably got speech marks in your Bible around those phrases. All things are lawful for me. It's because he's, he's saying back to them, this is what you say. All things are lawful for me. And he's saying, that's not the whole truth. See, let me give you something in response. One of the slogans in Corinth had become, everything's lawful for me. And Paul's saying, okay, let me give you another slogan. <laughs> let me give you something else to think about. Not all things are helpful. Now, the way we tend to think about sexuality in, in the modern West is very similar to the Corinthians. All things are lawful. That's kind of almost the only rule. The only law is that everything's lawful. Just, it, it, no one can tell you what to do. Just, just, I want absolute freedom. And by freedom, I mean I want absolute choice. I want to choose whatever I want to choose. I want absolute, unlimited choice. All things are lawful because therein lies freedom. But Paul has a different definition of freedom. He doesn't think that it's good to only think in terms of what's lawful, permissible, permitted. He says, no, that's not, that's not the only concern you should have. You should also think, what's beneficial? What's helpful for you? What's going to help you to flourish? What's going to help you to be a fulfilled human being? And most of us would say, well, I don't know. I don't even think like that. I don't even care. We, we, we grow up in a culture that doesn't really care about that so much. It, it really seems to assume that the only thing that matters is unlimited choice. But it surely isn't. You just give someone unlimited choices and it's bewildering. Anything's permissible. It's not that good a piece of information to receive. I need to know what's beneficial. I need to know what's going to help me. I'll put it like this. If you were in an Olympic rowing team, now I use, I use rowing because... Rowing is the sport where they, it seems to me that it's right up there with the most in, in, uh, intense levels of endurance and training. Incredibly hard work the rowing professionals have to go through to prepare themselves. And if you're in a team of, say, four rowers and you're trying to win the gold, and there's someone on the team that keeps saying, keeps asking questions like, what's permissible for me while we're away on the Olympics just doing this contest, how much alcohol am I allowed to have? How late am I allowed to stay up? How many training sessions can I miss while we're away at the Olympics? How, 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 um, how much time can I spend on the PlayStation while we're at the Olympics? How much time? I, if, if, you, if there's someone on the team who's constantly asking about what's permissible, you'll think, okay, we need to get this guy off the team. Because he's not, he is not asking, how do we get the gold? He's asking, how do I stay in the team, but basically get away with, with whatever choices I want? Whereas you're thinking, no, I want to achieve something. I, it's not just being, ex, being allowed that's the point. If someone came up to me and said, I, I'd like to start dating your daughter, and this will happen soon. <laughs> she's, she's 13, so it's a while, but uh, God help the man that comes to me and asks me. But, uh, but if he says to me, I'd like to start dating your daughter, what would you say is permissible for me in terms of how far we go? What, what's, what, what's, what's permissible? He's not going to ever see my daughter again. Because <laughs> he started with the wrong question. What's permissible? 
Paul's saying, no, that's not that. What's helpful? There's a, there's a, there's a goal. There's a, there's, a, there's a vision of life that is fulfilling and flourishing. And you're missing it if your only question is, what, how far can I go? What can I get away with? Yeah, there's something in the heart is slightly wrong there. But let's just keep reading on. He then says something else. He feeds back to them one of their other quotes that they like using. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. Now, this is a slogan which, again, would have been fairly common in their kind of very Greek world. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy one and the other. The idea is this physical stuff isn't going to last. The physical world is not enduring. The physical world, in fact, is kind of regrettable. This, this stuff, this material stuff that we breathe and and stand and walk and, and eat and, and swim in and whatever. This, this physical world, it's not, it's not the real spiritual world that we will one day perhaps graduate to, which is much more noble and honorable. We live in this, this, this messed up physical space and one day we'll be free from it and enter into a kind of mystical, spiritual, ethereal existence where we're free from the yucky, fleshly stuff that's somehow not quite good enough. Now, I'm, I'm kind of caricaturing it, but that was a, a prevailing worldview in the kind of Greek culture. They'd inherited it from their philosophers. And frankly, we've kind of inherited it too, a little bit, at least a little bit. It still prevails quite a lot. The idea that because maybe, maybe we try and associate it with God and ideas of God. God is spirit and we are matter and the thing to do is to become more spirit and to abandon the this material world. Now, if you, if you allow this thinking to get too, if, if this thinking can really poison things. It can mess things up in a dramatic way. The, the Apostle Paul has to speak about it in, in, in various places in the New Testament. Later on in, in 1 Timothy, he talks about people who, for example, 1 Timothy chapter 4, who don't allow marriage in the name of being spiritual and pious. He says that they, they, they restrict marriage. Now, through religious history, that has always been there. That has been a in all kinds of religions. There's been the notion that to be really spiritual, you mustn't get married because we've heard of what married people get up to. It's physical and mm, it's sexual, and genitals are involved. <laughs> and it's not it's not fitting, and we know that it means that the race carries on and children come, but it's kind of regrettable that the way in which the human race continues is through that disgraceful thing, which involves the body. And, and, and that's kind of carried on, and even into the Christian faith, monasticism and stuff like that, where celibacy is kind of honored as the only way to be a real pro-hardcore disciple of Jesus. You have to be single. 
Paul, Paul has noticed that. He says in 1 Timothy 4, this is the teaching of demons. He doesn't, he doesn't say, well, some people have their point of view. It's very interesting. Demonic, he says. It's demons teach this stuff. Get it out. We hate it. It's unbiblical. Why? Why is he so offended by it? At the heart of the offense is that he actually is going to go on to say the body will, will uh, God will destroy the body is not meant for sexual immorality he's going to actually say, say in verse 14 God raised the Lord now what, what he's touching on here is the fact that God has defied and amazed everyone's expectations by instead of keeping flesh and the material world at an eternal distance. He has embraced it. He's become flesh. He's become a man. He's done the extraordinary, which for the Greek world especially was shocking. He's done this extraordinary thing of embracing material, created matter, and said, I, I am I'm going to, in fact, become flesh and remain flesh. Not only did Jesus get born in a womb, if you've been at the birth of a child, you'll know that's, that's, that's not sort of a, a mystical thing. That's a, that's a physical thing. There's a lot of stuff involved. <laughs> Jesus was God, God himself, right there in the womb, out of the womb, with all of the material stuff that I won't mention for those who don't want that brought up on a Sunday morning. But, but G Jesus is born into that, and then, having been crucified and buried, raised as flesh. It's very important. He was not raised as a ghost. He was not raised as a cloud. He was raised as a man, a physical man. And right now, he is a man on the throne of heaven forever and ever. A physical man with the full physical body. Yes, all of it. What, really? Yes. Jesus has been raised. Why is that relevant? Because it, it, it totally takes out from underneath this unhelpful notion that the, the body and the physical side is something for which we need to apologize. Something that's unspiritual. Not at all. The Son of God has made it holy. So we don't have to see sex and sexuality as something appallingly unspiritual, but in fact see it as a context for spirituality, a context for worship, a context for obedience, a context for devotion to, to God. And so he's, he's going to go on and say, as I skip past some of his phrases, he says the body is, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. It's not just meant for destruction. It's not just meant for just being dissolved. It's, part, it's, it's actually a context of worship. This, this seems perhaps for some of us a bit obscure. You know, we, we don't live in ancient Greece. We don't live in Corinth in the first century. So why is this relevant to us? It's relevant because if you, if you don't fight against this mentality, you will either fall off the horse on one side or the other. And like I said earlier, some people have fallen off the horse on the side of regretting and feeling ashamed of the whole thing of sex and thinking of it as completely unspiritual. Now that, that, that completely, in the, when you, read, you cannot read the Bible and maintain that worldview. Because from the beginning, sex, marriage, are things that are delighted in by God. Utterly delighted in. 
and, and in ways that would make some of us blush, in ways that we think, really, is that in the Bible? Absolutely. There's a whole book of the Bible, eight chapters, the Song of Solomon, very close to the middle of your Bible, which for centuries people have thought, Should, what do we even do with that bit of the Bible? And found it it's difficult to know how to teach it and preach it. And there's lots of ways to interpret it. It's a very rich book, but you can't get past the fact that it celebrates the physical side of married love. A faithful man and a woman absolutely besotted with one another physically, enjoying each other physically. To the point where I can imagine some people sort of, if God had an editor, you know, sort of say, could we just talk about, like, we love this Bible project of yours. We're very keen on it. We like the whole thing. There's just one chunk we just think maybe you would like to just tone it down or even maybe delete it from the whole document and God say no keep it in keep it in I want it there like he does lots of other bits in here that show us that this is all important but there's also the other side of the horse we can fall and that is where we think well because the body's going anyway and the body's not really the context of worship therefore what I do with my body hasn't really got anything to do with God so I can call myself a follower of Jesus even, but behave sexually as if <laughs> he doesn't have any effect on what I do with my body. I, I can sleep around. I can look at porn. I can, I can develop relationships with people outside marriage that I know probably I shouldn't, but it doesn't really matter because that's just my body. That's just the physical side. I'm, I'm a really spiritual person, really. I'm really spiritual. Yeah, I know I sleep around, but I'm really spiritual. That's a weird notion. That would only be in a world that's been kind of captivated by a Greek worldview. It's just completely, it's folly. It doesn't work. It doesn't work at all. You might think, yeah, I can, you know, I can take my body away from my spiritual side of life. A bit like taking a key off a key ring. You know, if I go running, I take one key and put it in my pocket because I don't want to have a whole jangling load of keys with me when I go running around. It's, it, it'll wake up the neighbors, you know. It's like, so I just take one key. Because you can do that, just unhook it and just take it. It's just unhooked. But you can't do that with your body. You can't unhook that side of you and say, well, that's not, my, that's not really me. The truth is what you do physically, sexually, is really at the heart of who you are. You, you really are in, intended physically with your body to devote yourself to God. So if in fact in your sexual behavior you're devoting yourself to partners who you're not married to, you're submitting everything about yourself to them. Some of you, you, you know this, you've perhaps buried it a little bit. You've believed it once. You, you couldn't help believing it when you first perhaps First time you became naked with someone, maybe, and, and you weren't married to them, and you, you felt when you were doing it, I feel like I'm making myself incredibly vulnerable. This, this feels like a big deal. And you're right, you really were, because you're giving yourself to them. You can't just say, oh, it's just my body. No, 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 you're giving yourself to that person. And some of us have given ourselves so many times. We've given ourselves away in our, even our imagination. We're giving ourselves sexually in ways that really belong to purity. And, and it's not healthy ultimately. Our bodies are actually intended, as he says, don't you know that your body is 
a temple. And it doesn't mean it in the fitness video kind of way, you know. My body's a temple. It does not mean that. It means a bit more like this. This thing here. The, the, the body is a, is a, this is just, you know, bits of plywood and, and, and steel strings and that's, that's all it is. But, but it's, a, it's a, an item of devotion. When it's brought here on a Sunday and, and plucked and played in worship to God, it's, it's, it, everything about it is resounding to the glory of God. Your body is, in, is exactly the same. It's intended to, to be offered up to God. Your, yeah, just physical stuff, absolutely. Your imagination, your mind, your brain waves, absolutely. You can't detach it. You can't change the way that God has wired you. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that the one who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So when I am brought into the family of God. If I've become a Christian, which I'm sure most of us have, if you haven't, then you need to consider this. Becoming a Christian means literally being joined to Christ. You become one with him. And there's only one other way in life in which we are kind of, that you, something similar is described, and that is the context of marriage. That's why marriage is so massively important, because you're joined one to another. That's a picture of how we can be joined to Jesus. But it means that when we give ourselves away sexually in the wrong way, outside of marriage, we, we, we're taking Christ with us. Paul's saying to the Christians, you don't understand. This is not just Paul saying, don't be naughty. Sex is naughty. Don't you be naughty. Don't you go and do naughty things with prostitutes. That's a very naughty thing to do. It's not, it's not really bringing the law in that sense at all, that's not, it's not legalistically trying to, here's the line, don't do, that's permissible, that's not permissible, don't do that. No, he, he said, you don't even get it. You don't even know what you've become. You don't understand that you, you've got Christ within you. So where you go, he goes. Who you are joined with, you join him with. Can you see what you're doing? Can you see how <laughs> sacred that makes this? See how blasphemous it makes it when we, when we, Spoil ourselves, spoil our bodies sexually. This is no small thing. This is why sex is such a, a big deal, both in a beautiful, wonderful way and such a serious, sobering way. And we need to get it right. And we could, we could go from here to think, you know, what, what, what's the good news then? How do we... How do we how do we find any redemption if we've blown it in this area? And in some ways, we all have, actually, to some extent. We may not have slept around, but we will, even within a monogamous married relationship, perhaps used sexuality in a selfish way, in a manipulative way, not in a devoted, heart-giving way. We may have got caught up with pornography, and we may even imagine, I don't think I'll ever be free from this. It's become a big deal in my life. And so we, we could come to this with all kinds of questions and feelings of complete 
unacceptability. I'm just, I'm in shame. I'm in guilt. I'm, I'm defiled. I'm messed up and filthy and don't really know the way out of this. And I tell you, that's not really a very good recipe for hope, is it? If you see sex as just a big area of failure, and if you see God as basically your boss who you have failed, well, nothing much is going to change in here, is it? You're just going to get more and more fed up with yourself, more and more exhausted with, with trying to change. There's no hope there. But this book is full of hope. The answer is actually much better than you think, much happier than you think. Because God doesn't just relate to you as judge. He doesn't just relate to you as Lord and master who looks down on your failure and criticizes from a distance. Is that how God relates to us? Is that how he wants us to see him? The God of the Bible, the God has revealed himself through Jesus is so good, is so merciful, is so kind and gracious that actually he has the power to beguile us, tempt us <laughs> away from our temptations. See, many of us think we, we're going to get away from sexual sin and sexual temptation and sexual failure by willpower, by desperate attempts to kind of overcome through our strength. I don't think that works. The only thing that will, will replace you know, a song in your head, maybe you have a radio jingle that goes around your head a lot and you, you, it just annoys you. You can't get it out of your head. I've got some that I remember since I was about 11. I can't get out of my head, even years later. And now some of you have got them in your head. I'm really sorry about that. But the point I want to make is that the best way to get them out of your head is actually to remember a better song. Replace them with a beautiful song. And it's as simple as that. We all of us need a beautiful song. We've been sold a song from the culture of sexuality that's just all about choice and so-called liberty. It's not liberty at all. Certainly not liberating. Certainly doesn't make us fulfilled. But we've swallowed it and it's gone around our head and it's just we feel trapped by it. What you need is a song from heaven. You need a song, really, if you like, a marriage from heaven. You need a relationship offered to you based on grace, forgiveness, being washed clean. This is the very song that the Bible sings to us, the very song that Jesus came singing. Because what the Bible teaches from cover to cover is a story of a marriage, of purity, of a, of a, a bridegroom, Jesus, who saw a bride who was ashamed, covered in guilt, covered in shame, covered in unfaithfulness, just like me and you, with all of our mess. And I've got plenty of mess I could tell you about. But I have this extraordinary groom who came to me and gave me his robes of righteousness. Gave me, a, if you like, gave me a clean wedding gown. <laughs> I said, right, this, this, you're going to have this forever and ever and ever. You're, you're going to be clean forever and ever and ever. 
And you think, how, how, can, you, how can you give this to me? Who's paying for this? Who's, who's covering my guilt? Who's covering my shame? How could this be possible? How could you come and find me in all my mess and make me feel pure again? Make me feel innocent? Make me feel like I've never done anything wrong in my life? How can you do this? It's actually what Paul goes on to refer to. He said in verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. He's kind of urging us on, but then he says to help us make the point, towards the end of verse 19, you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Now when he writes these, these words, and I'll just finish with this. You and I, we, we, we read verses like this. You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. And then we read on because we culturally don't sensitively enough imagine what that would have sounded like to the first people who read this letter. But he's writing to a church in an ancient city in the Roman Empire. Do you know what they would have walked past on their way to church that day when they heard Paul's letter? Slave markets. They would have walked past slave markets. Just, just as a normal thing, like you and I would walk past supermarkets, they walk past slave markets. Just on the way to church, just there's people being sold. Certainly if they live in a port, a place on the harbor, ships coming up, slaves. It would have been part of life. You just occasionally just see it. Just people, just, there's some people being sold. And, and you imagine what that was like. You know, I'm being, I'm being turned, I'm in chains. I don't know what's gonna come next. I don't know, I'm, oh, all right, oh, okay, they get their set up. I'm going to be sold. Who's it going to be? What kind of life am I going to have? You just hope. You know, the best you can hope for is a good master. And, and they would have just seen that as normal. So when they read this, this letter, they say, you're not your own, you're bought with a price. They think, oh, that's the arrangement, is it? Oh, I, that's what he is then. He's my master. And he, you bet he is, because the reality is we all have a master, every one of us, right? We all do. Don't you? You know in your heart of hearts, in your real moments, you feel very often that sense, I feel like I can't even control myself. I feel like, so often I feel like I've just got, maybe for some of you it's sex addictions and habits and pornography, you think, I just, I am under someone else's control. I just can't be free from this. And, and if, if you're, whoever, you might say, well, I'm, not, I'm no one's slave. I am my own master. But I think honestly, in our honest moments, we know that we, in the end, will serve something or somebody. Even death is, in the end, a bit of a slave master, isn't it? We might think we're free, but only for a few more years. We're all under some mastery, some mastership. And Paul says, yeah, it's true. You are not your own. But then he says, you were bought with a price. And this comes as just exquisitely good news because I, I am there at the slave market in chains waiting to see and someone comes and says I'm taking that one I want that one and you look to see what it's like and this person takes you away removes your chains gives you a place at his table sits you down in his house gives you freedom honor shows forgiveness for everything in your past that you've ever done treats you as his own joins himself to you and you feel, I've, I've come home. I feel, I've, I've never been so free. He's my master, but I really like serving him. I really like doing what he wants. 
And you think, how could this be? How could he set me free? What price did he pay for me? How could he possibly do this? Well, we know that how he did it. He did it through his own death. He did it through giving himself. He was chained up. He was taken where you wouldn't want to go. He was covered with shame. He, he, he himself became the one who carried all of our guilt on himself on the cross. So we don't have to live there. And friends, when you understand God this way and start to see his beauty and his goodness, when you start to catch that song, if you like, it will start to help you away from some of the apparently overpowering and overwhelming sexual problems in our lives. They stop being so powerful, don't they? Because you've met someone who's far more powerful and far more wonderful, far more heart-winning. Let's just pray right now, shall we? And we'll come to the table as Derek comes up to lead us. Father, we just want to say thank you again for Jesus. And we want to devote our hearts and minds to him again, wholeheartedly. Because we've learned, to, we've learned how good he is. So receive our thanks and help us to worship you now wholeheartedly, not just in our singing, but with our lives of devotion. In Jesus' name, amen.